Welcome to Multifamily Syndication Unscripted, a show that teaches investors the truth about multifamily real estate. Your hosts, Ben Labovich, Sam Grooms, and Scott Hollister have more than 30 years of combined experience in real estate and finance. We are active multifamily syndicators and operators, providing you with detailed and cycle-appropriate content. Absolutely no fluff. So, if you want to be smarter about how and where you put your capital to work, listen up. You will learn what works in today's market conditions. What, what did we decide on? Multifamily syndication, unscripted. That's the name of the show, right? Yes. For episode two, that is the name of our show. <laughs> All right, ben, you touched on something uh, last episode about the 30,000 foot view, right? So the big picture of multifamily syndication. So is it a cash flow play? Is it a flip? Um, okay. And this is, this is important, you guys. And, and here, I think we're going to challenge some of your assumptions and some of what you think you know. Um, and honestly, I didn't begin to figure things out until I started challenging my own perspective and, and what I learned. And, you know, I, 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 at that point, I'd been in small multifamily space for a decade. And I kind of knew what it was. And, and I, I kind of felt innately that in some ways it didn't work well. And I started asking myself, why not? What am I missing? That kind of thing. Well, I want to, again, and the point of this show, the point of this podcast is to help out your learning curve. So as to allow you to see the big picture uh, a lot sooner than what it took me, basically, and, and us. Um, so I've got kind of four realities. And, and I'm sorry, the first part of the show is going to sound a little less unscripted and a little more like Ben is teaching because this is, it's, it, there, there's no way to do it. But four realities that I want to put before you that exist, very much so, they exist, but they lead us to a certain perspective. The first reality is a very simple personal finance reality, which is that wealth is created on the balance sheet. You know, you go on bigger pockets, you go on my side, just ask Ben why, you know, so much of what we write is relative to cash flow. And, you know, when Brandon Turner and I started and we started in the same place, you know, and, and you begin thinking, how do I replace my job income? Because, you know, I just hate showing up to work. Or in my case, I have a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, so it's just stupid of me to plan on showing up for work. So what do I do? Our minds, when we were young, went toward cash flow, quite simply, replacing cash flow. What you learn, however, as you grow up, is that while cash flow does buy you some amount of latitude, financially speaking, some amount of flexibility, you do need some cash flow. You just don't get rich off of cash flow. You get rich off of the balance sheet, off of the equity. You become a millionaire because there are seven numbers on your net worth. That 
may or may not have anything to do with the cash flow. So, and your needs change. You you start needing the cash flow. You need the freedom, and then once you have that, then you can worry about the higher level and getting your equity, balance sheet, and wealth. That's right. And but in real estate, it's not necessarily a choice item. Right. Uh, and we'll talk about that. We'll back into that. But I just, I just, it's important for us to identify the basis, right? Wealth is created on the balance sheet, so that's one reality financially speaking. Uh, another reality is that cash flows are discounted over time. And this is kind of a complex subject matter, but what we're doing, and mathematically it's represented with a concept or, or formula called IRR, uh, internal rate of return, or MIRR, which is timed monthly IRR, uh, or XIRR, but what it really means, the big picture of it, says $1,000 of cash flow today buys more stuff than $1,000 of cash flow seven years from now. So as I am looking at this cash flow, how do I represent $1,000 of cash flow sometime in the future in terms of its buying power equivalency today. So the reason we want cash flow is to buy shit. We want to live on it. But if you're going to be intellectually honest about it, you really have to ask the question, how much stuff can I buy for the cash flow I've got? Okay. And that's a function of, you know, inflation. And you guys know what I'm talking about because even if you hadn't thought about it in these terms, you felt it. You know stuff becomes more expensive. The dollar becomes diluted. That's one piece of it. Another piece of it is opportunity cost. $1,000 of cash flow today is not the same thing as $1,000 of cash flow five years from now. Because you may, in the interim, have had an opportunity to create more. And so you have to discount locking your money up for a period of time to a certain extent. So this conversation can go on and on and on. And frankly, I'm not the best mathematically equipped person to have that conversation. I know enough to be dangerous, but not nearly enough to walk you through the exact mathematics of it. To me, it's a formula in the Excel spreadsheet. But it's very much a reality that cash flows becomes discounted over time, which in real estate is important because of the next reality, which is that today's cash flow is tomorrow's capex, capital expense. Let me paint you a picture. Um, you buy a duplex and you have $300 a month of cash flow and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. If you realize, however, that in seven years you will need to replace your furnace, then you will take the cost, projected cost of your furnace seven years from now, and you will divvy that up into seven years and you will divvy that up into 12 months. And you will come out with a figure, a dollar amount, that you should 
take out of your cash flow and set aside so as to be able to prepare to deploy it seven years from now when your furnace does indeed need to be replaced. The fallacy of cash flow and the fallacy of so much of the content and information everybody talks about is that nobody ever does. Nobody ever does take enough money out of the cash flow so as to be able to deploy as needed in the future. And therefore, most of the time, you end up with a situation where eventually you have a decision to make. Do I put this money in my pocket and call it my cash flow? Or do I set this money aside and call it my future capital expense? And then the next perspective on it is that if you have to replace a furnace in that unit that you bought for $90,000 five years ago, and because of where it is and when it is, what it is, it's still only worth $90,000. Then you start feeling really bad about spending that money, spending that check. Whereas if you bought a unit for 90 and now it's worth 150, then you'll go ahead and feel pretty good about writing the money, uh, writing the check. Because why? Because you know you're going to get the money back through what? Cash flow or appreciation? Dot, dot, dot. Okay? So all of this kind of, and I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but the fact that the cash flows are discounted and the fact of the reality of capital expense that happens over time really kind of pushes you into needing some appreciation, doesn't it? Because what compensates for the discount in cash flow? What compensates for needing to spend money over time. And then the last piece of this that I want to mention is that as you get into syndication and you begin accepting people's money um, and working with people's money, the reality of it is that the first question you will be asked by your investors is, how much money will you make me? And the second question immediately following, and sometimes they're reversed, will be, when can I have my money back? So with all of this conversation focused on appreciation, seemingly, because the wealth is created on the balance sheet, which is a function of appreciation, because the cash flows are discounted, over time, therefore, you need appreciation to compensate for the discount. Because the CapEx is going to happen, it's not an it question, it's a when question. And the only way you can feel good about deploying capital in the CapEx is if you know you can get it back. Otherwise, you feel you throw good money after bad. So you need appreciation to do that. And because the investors want to know how you're going to get them out, so you're focused on the out, on the exit. Now, gentlemen, you both do this. I do not, not with single families. But tell me, what kind of transaction are we speaking of when we start talking about the exits and the appreciation and the back end? What are we talking about? That's a flip. It's a flip. 
Okay, so here we are sitting in a syndication multifamily show. And dear listener, if you showed up thinking we'll be talking about cash flow, and here we are telling you it sounds more like a flip, <laughs> might be a little shocking, but that's what it is. Now, the cash flow has a role to play. And the income has a role to play, a very large role to play that we'll discuss in a later show. But what we are talking about here, conceptually, the big picture is a flip. We buy an apartment building, we improve it, and we sell it, hopefully for more than what we paid. And that's what generates our returns, our internal rate of return, and so on and so forth. And we'll discuss those specifics later on. Now, Scott and Sam, what is the first step in any flip? So the first thing I would do anytime I'm going to set a potential flip is I, what can I sell this for? What's, what can I do to improve it? And what's that improvement value? And, and what dictates the after repaired value? Well, for a flip, it's the market, the comps. Right. So it's the market. Yes. It's not you. So that's the first, the first kind of uh, um, distinction we need to make. A lot of newbies, whether we're talking about single family or apartments, a lot of newbies uh, do it backwards. They buy a property, then they add to that the amount of money that they spend to improve it. Then they add to that their profit margin. And then they say, okay, this is how much I need to sell it for. The problem is that you don't get in real estate to decide what you want to sell things for. The market, the comps, the market dynamics decide that for you. Therefore, the first step is actually to start up here and determine what can I sell this for once I've done what I got to do to it. And then the next step becomes subtract the cost of the repairs. Subtract the holding costs. Subtract the finance costs. And subtract my profit margin. And with that, you arrive at what's called your strike price or basically what you can pay for an asset. This works the same way in single family as it does in multifamily. Only if you recognize that multifamily is a flip. If you simply think of it as a capitalized net operating income, you think of multifamily as a cash flow play only. Then you take the existing NOI and you capitalize that value and you hold it. The problem is because those cash flows are discounted, your real net present value adjusted return is much lower than you would think. So in order to incorporate the equity portion into this conversation, we have to incorporate the thinking of it being a flip because we have to guarantee ourselves as much as possible some amount of equity appreciation. And of course, we can't trust the market to do it. 
Therefore, we have to do it ourselves. It has to be inclusive in our underwriting. Does that make sense? Yep. And I think there was a good point there when you said you get you the end result is how much can I pay for this property? So when you're looking at someone else and saying, well, why can they pay more than me? It's they're probably calculating the ARV different. It, that's that's the biggest determining factor. And and I think that's what we are going to spend a lot of time discussing in future episodes is how do we come up with that number for after repair value? Or, or more than that, they're not calculating the ARV at all. I mean, like I said, uh, for a lot of people, you know, how you exit is not, that doesn't even enter the conversation. Um, well, yeah, I think, but we're talking about competing with the big boys and they're looking at that. Yes. The big and, boys are all underwriting to the eternal rate of return. And the, the simple, you know, you can, you can argue validity of the IRR underwriting, but what you cannot take away from it is that IRR as a formula doesn't work until you close the loop. The money has to come out of the deal, either through a refinance or a sale, in order for the IRR to even be calculatable. So if nothing else, underwriting the IRR forces you to think through the entire lifespan of your investment and to underwrite the exit, which I think is important because when investing, the rule is very simple. First, make sure you don't lose money. Make sure you have an exit. Make sure you have several exits. Then worry about how much money you're going to make. And as you guys go out and try to raise money from investors, you will understand and appreciate how important this is. People want to know you've got a number of ways to get out of the deal because that's how they define their safety. And, and I still think cash flow is important in this factor because cash flow allows you to hold on until you can realize that exit. Because like you said, multifamily, it's not your six-month flip. It's your three, five, could be a 10-year if you went through a cycle. And cash flow is what you need to be able to hold on to that long enough to be able to exit. Well, cash flow is important. Yeah. And I haven't even touched on it, but you can't underwrite the ARV without underwriting the cash flow. Right. I mean, and this is, this is in the weeds of our underwriting, which I don't want to get into because it's a future show, um, obviously. But when we talk about the after-repaired value, we have to acknowledge that this isn't a single-family flip that takes four to six months. This is, this is a building that may sell in three years, four years, seven years, 10 years. So how is it, how do you underwrite what your exit is going to look like if it's that far removed? And there's a lot of conversation that needs to take place, but obviously cash flow is what A, is going to allow you to stay in the deal long enough to be able to exit in five, seven, 10 years, A, and B, cash flow is what's going to underpin your capitalized valuation on your exit. So cash flow and income have an extraordinarily important function in what we do, several functions in what we do. But they are, the, the cash flows are supporting player in the drama. Uh, they're not, they're not, 
you know, the, the, they're not the point. They're not the purpose. The cash flows are there to support something else. Without them, without cash flows, nothing else works. But having said that, we're using cash flows to underpin other pieces of this. The, the basic picture, basically, you're asking two questions. One is, what's my net operating income going to be at the moment when I want to sell? Why are you asking that question? Because your buyer is going to ask that question. And everything we do in real estate investment property is that we cater to the end. We cater to the exit. Whether it's a flip of a single family and you are looking at your comparative market analysis and you're saying, okay, a bathroom, people are paying X, Y, Z amount of dollars for an extra half bath. Or uh, going from a two-car garage to a three-car garage, people are paying this much extra. And you identify these features and then you see how you can improve your property so as to cater to a potential buyer for this particular type of property. You know, we do the same thing in multifamily. It's just our guys, our buyers, they want the net operating income. And what they do with it is then say, okay, well, if this is how much net operating income you have, I'm willing to capitalize by X, and this is how much I'll pay you for your property. So, and capitalization, capitalize it, it's just a fancy word for saying, how much are people willing to pay for that income? And with that, we get into what a cap rate is, which is the next show. Because cap rate is not at all what people think cap rate is. Um, so, but essentially what you, Scott, what, what the answer to your question I think is, is that, you know, if you pretend that there's no time component to this, just imagine here, you bought a building today, now you're selling it sometime later. The questions you're asking is, what's my NOI sometimes later? And then next question is, what is the likely capitalization rate that my buyer is going to apply to that NOI to arrive at a purchase price for my building that they will be able to pay me? Now, the function of arriving at that, because you can't just jump from here to seven years from now. How, how do you know what your NOI is going to be? The process of underwriting and rationalizing that entire thing and building out the middle so that it rationally takes you to that point where you need to be that's underwriting. And that's what Sam is talking about. You isolate line items and we will be going through each and every line item that you need to consider and chewing on it in great detail as part of this series. But I think next show should be a show about, and guys, we don't even know, dude. We just, we just, this is so unscripted. We don't even know what the well, hell we're talking about in the next show. The next show is going to be a deep dive on the cap rate. We're going to change your perspective on what the cap rate is, first of all. And secondly, we're going to discuss placing a cap rate sometime in the future. What kind of rationale goes into, we know what the cap rate is today, but what's it going to be when we're ready to sell? We're going to have that discussion. That's an interesting discussion. Nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows exactly what it's going to be. But we'll have that discussion and give you perspective on it so you can go and do your research and build more information uh, upon what you hear here. My name is Ben Leibovich. 
I am with Scott, the, the, the very hairy and good-looking Scott Hollister, and the very opposite of hairy, uh, cleanly shaven. I think Sam Groves would oh, get out of bed every morning. <laughs> the biggest job he has on a given day is to shave the top of his head. Like, that takes the longest. It's like the, the most important thing to do. Right, Sam? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, that's – see, the first 45 minutes goes right there. <laughs> Thank you for listening, guys. Uh, hopefully you got some value out of this. This is Ben, Scott, and Sam uh, saying ciao, and we will see you in the next episode and talk about cap rates. Talk soon. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Multifamily Syndication Unscripted with your hosts, Ben, Sam, and Scott. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time on Multifamily Syndication Unscripted. Unscripted.